Have you ever tried reading the original King James Version of the Bible? Let's give it a try. It's in English, so what could go wrong? Here's verse 30 from Genesis chapter 43. And Joseph made haste, for his bowels did yearn upon his brother, and he sought where to weep, and he entered into his chamber and wept there. Okay. I know food, especially if it's gone bad, doesn't always sit well in our stomachs, but I feel really badly for Joseph's brothers. Wait, what's that you say? That's not what that means? Elizabethan English is misleading us? Okay, let's take a look at that verse in the New Revised Standard Version, which is in modern English. With that, Joseph hurried out because he was overcome with affection for his brother, and he was about to weep. Ah, if your bowels yearn, it means you're overcome with affection. It's a good thing. I guess words and phrases change meaning over time. Well, that's the case here as we continue our exploration of the letter of James. We may think we know what being rich and poor mean, but is that what James means? The bottom line, understanding James in context shows us what it truly means to love our neighbor. You're listening to The Way with Father Dustin Lyon, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. Welcome back to The Way Podcast. I'm Father Dustin, your host. As you know, we've been going through James, looking specifically now at chapter 2. Last week we talked about what it truly means to be religious. Does being religious, or maybe in today's language you could say being spiritual, have to do with the ceremony of services? In other words, coming to church making sure you make the sign of the cross properly, making sure you sit or stand or say the right prayers, those sorts of things. Or does it mean something else? As we saw in James last week, being religious has to do with walking the way. In other words, being obedient or following the command of God, as we saw in Scripture. And the example that James gives is one about a rich man coming into a synagogue, and everyone shows him the best seats because he is rich. Perhaps everyone thinks he can bless them with money. Isn't that how we sometimes treat people? We reduce them to how much they can give. And this is very unfortunate. But if we think they can give a lot to the community, we tend to treat them differently than people who can't give a lot to the community. And James is saying, this is not what it truly means to be religious. Now, I want to step back a little bit and talk about what it means to be rich and poor in ancient society. Because it's a little different than the way we think about being rich or poor. Although I think it is also somewhat related. The first thing you have to know about society in the first century is that they believed in limited goods. They believed that there's only so much to go around, whether it was land or money, wealth, or another sort of good, there was only so much of it to go around. 
For example, you can think of your Thanksgiving pie. If there is one pie for everyone at Thanksgiving, you have to figure out how many pieces to divide into so that everyone gets a slice of the pie. If there are 10 people and you divide the pie into eight pieces, it means that someone will have to go without pie. And that's how, in the ancient world, they thought about wealth and land. There was only so much to go around. And you can see this idea in the Old Testament when it comes to land, for example. So, as we know, land was divided among the different tribes of Israel. God had apportioned it so that everyone had an equal or fair share of the land. Now, people were free to sell or rent or buy land as they wanted, but according to biblical law, every so many years in the year of Jubilee, all the land that had been bought and sold had to revert back to its original property owners, because this was the way that God had portioned out the world, and it was thought that he had done it in a way that was fair to everyone. And so it always reverted back to the original family, so that they could again share in God's blessings, the bounty that he gives to all of us. And this is also where the tithe comes in. So there was a tribe, the Levites, who were not allowed to own land. And the reason the Levites didn't have any land is because it was their responsibility to serve God in the temple. That was their work. They were to offer the sacrifices and the daily prayers. But so that they too could benefit from God's blessing, benefit from the land, the other tribes of Israel had to give a tithe to the temple. In other words, 10% of what they grew, as far as crops, was given to the temple, and then that was then handed out to the priests. This was not some sort of economic social justice or economic social redistribution. It was the idea that the land didn't belong to the people, it belonged to God, and God's intention was that everyone benefit from the land. And so 10% of what others grew went to the temple so that the priests or the Levites could benefit also from God's gift of the land or the fruit from the land. So what does this have to do with being rich and poor? Well, if you were poor in society, it meant in their minds that you could no longer benefit from the land or what had been given to you by God, which you were born with by right. And so if you were poor, it didn't necessarily mean that you were poor by our standards. So a widow, a poor widow, for example, was poor not because she didn't have any money. In fact, in the ancient world, a widow could have a lot of money. She could be rich by our standards, but still be poor by their standards. And this was because the widow, if she didn't have a husband, and if she didn't have a son or another male family member to care for her, could not benefit from the land that God had blessed everyone with. And so she was poor. Also, being poor meant that you were unable to defend what you had, or what had been given to you, or what you had been born with. It also meant you weren't able to defend your honor. Remember, this was an honor-shame society. And so to be poor didn't necessarily mean that you were 
without money, it meant that you weren't able to defend what was yours. So being rich, on the other hand, was the exact opposite. A rich person was someone who was greedy. In other words, they took more of the pie than what was owed to them. So if you go back to the land example in the Old Testament, a rich person was someone who bought up land from others that wasn't necessarily theirs. It was land that had not been apportioned to them by God. So in the minds of the ancient person, a rich person was greedy because he was taking more than what he was owed. In other words, if there were 10 people and the pie at Thanksgiving had been divided into 10 pieces, the rich person took three or four pieces, leaving others without. So it's important that you understand that they viewed this as a limited goods society. If I had to summarize this, to be poor in the ancient world, as scripture uses it, meant that you were socially unfortunate. You were not able to defend what was yours, or you were not able to share in the blessings that had been given to you by God. And to be rich meant that you were greedy, someone who gobbled up more of the pie than what you were owed. And so this is a part of that social dynamic. When you hear James talk about being rich and poor, think instead of being greedy or socially unfortunate, and you have a better idea of what James is talking about, and a better idea of understanding all of that. So with those remarks, let's continue on. This is chapter 2 of James, starting with verse 8. You would do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, that is, favoritism between people, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So this goes back to what Jesus said in the Gospels. When he's asked about the law, he comes back and he summarizes it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and soul, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so James is picking up on that as well. He says, if you're going to fulfill the royal law, and here is the word used for like kings, the king of kings, that sort of thing. Um, This is the sort of law it is. If you're going to fulfill that law, then you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And it was very common in the first century, especially among rabbis and other learned scholars and scribes of Scripture, to try to summarize the law into one or two phrases. This was very common. And so what Jesus does was not something new. In fact, we have other rabbis saying something very similar to this. So Jesus is reinforcing an idea about the law or the meaning of the law that was already out there. In fact, he's giving weight to it by putting it this way. And so James is doing the same thing. If you're going to fulfill that royal law, in other words, that law that comes directly from God and not men, you do well to love your neighbor as yourself. And he brackets this by saying, but if you show partiality or favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. So committing sin, of course, uh, in Greek means to miss the mark. You haven't gotten the point of what the law is. You strayed from the path. In other words, you aren't walking the way, if we're going to put it in terms of this podcast. When James says you should love your neighbor as yourself, he's thinking very specifically about what loving your neighbor looks like and what that means. So love in this context is not some sort of puppy dog love or thinking good thoughts about someone. There's something specific that James is thinking about. 
So let's continue on and see how James unpacks this for us. So this is starting with verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For the one who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but if you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. And liberty here could also be translated as freedom. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So James has a fairly simple argument here. So he says, the law summarized is to love your neighbor as yourself. But then he goes on to say, if you follow one bit of the law, you have to follow the whole law. So it's no benefit for you to not commit adultery when you're going around murdering people. So wait a minute, you may think, didn't James just say you must follow the law and it's summarized by loving your neighbor? I think the last part of what James says clarifies it a little bit when he says, For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So in James's mind, there's two ways of looking at the law. One way is a very wooden way a very legalistic way, perhaps we would say. And that is to say, the law says to do this and not that, and that's what you do. You follow it, letter for letter. But the other way of looking at the law is not as a guidelines that micromanages everything in your life, but as an overall ethos of life. And that ethos has to do with mercy. So when he says the law is summarized by loving your neighbor, What he means is that the law shows us what it means to be merciful, and that's how we should act. It's not about following every little nuance of the law, but the overall ethos, and that ethos is to show mercy. And so this goes back to what it means to be rich and poor. So if you're poor and you're socially unfortunate, James is saying you should have mercy on those people. And the rich, in James's eye, just as it is with all ancient people, is to be someone who is greedy and has taken more than they are owed, or more than what God has allowed them to have. And so, if you give those people the best seats in the house, and you show favoritism to them, then you aren't in line with the ethos of the law, which is to love your neighbor or show mercy. So the question is, how are we to understand that today? So as 21st century Americans, we do often think about people being poor as people who don't have any money. It would be very hard for us to see someone with a lot of money as poor as an ancient person could. But I think it's still relevant for us because people who are poor face uphill challenges in society. Oftentimes, they don't have access to education as other folks would. They don't have the social connections other folks would have that help them get ahead in society. Um, We can also think of systemic problems within our society that may keep people poor, such as racism. So, in many cases, to think of poor simply in terms of money would be a mistake. Because even in our society, to be poor also means to be socially unfortunate and face challenges 
that other people do not. And what James is advocating is for us to have mercy on them, to help them out, and to help balance society a little bit so that things are a bit more fair. Or if we want to think of it in biblical terms, we need to understand that nothing belongs to us. It's all given to us. God is the one who owns the land, so we need to find a way of making sure that everyone can share in the bounty, the blessings that the land produces. And perhaps the most shocking part of all of this, or the part that none of us want to hear, is when James says in verse 13, For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. And this reminds me of the Lord's Prayer, which is actually a very scary prayer, because in that prayer we say, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. In other words, we're actually praying that if we do not forgive others, We're asking God not to forgive us. That's what that prayer is saying. And it's the same thing here with James. If we do not show mercy, we will not be shown mercy by God in the judgment. So this is getting very real, that the way God will treat us depends on how we treat others. Or if you want to flip it, we know that God is a merciful God. And he has mercy in all those who plead to him. That's why we pray Kyrie eleison in our services. So, if we know that God is a merciful God, then we as Christians should act in the same way. We are to have mercy on others. So, you can say it in the negative. If we don't have mercy on others, God won't have mercy on us. Or you can say it in the positive. We know that God is merciful, so we are merciful. However you want to say it, the point is the same. As Christians, we have a particular path to walk, and it's all about loving our neighbors as ourselves and showing mercy to them. And when we do that, we're walking the way. So we'll continue with our exploration of James, starting with chapter 2, verse 14, next week. All right, God bless you all.